Hi, welcome to When We Speak, where we shed stigmas, say goodbye to shame, strengthen ourselves, and encourage others. I am your host, Tasha Hunter. Today, I'm speaking with Heather Kaleri. Heather writes about being an awkward Christian, finding God's grace in the most uncomfortable places. She has written extensively about mental health, abuse, and its repercussions, healthy relationships, faith reconstruction after spiritual abuse, and progressive theology. Her work has been featured in so many publications to include Christianity Today, In Touch Magazine, Fathom Magazine, Relevant Magazine, iBelieve.com, and Image. She also serves as the contributing editor at both She Loves Magazine and The Mudroom and makes awkward Christian art on Instagram. Today, we're going to talk about her course, 30 Days to Loving Dignity, and how you come to, to have healthy relationships and and knowing the difference in healthy versus unhealthy relationships. Loving people like Jesus. Recovering from abuse. We talk about it all. I am so excited for you guys to listen to this conversation. I've loved Heather's writing for years and years. And it's just been such a blessing to be able to connect with her. So here you go. So today we have Heather Kaleri, and I'm so excited to have you today, Heather. If you could just tell our listeners who you are, however your bio comes to you. Ooh, okay. So I am a writer. I am. I live in San Diego, and I've lived here for since I was in seventh grade. Um, I've been writing for about 20 years, and lately, the thing that I really write about is awkward faith. (laughs) What does it mean to, because I think Jesus calls us to awkward faith. I think he causes us, he, he calls us to notice those parts of our faith that make us uncomfortable. And that those places are kind of an invitation to go deeper, to find healing, to find connection and wholeness and honesty. But most of the times in the church, we sort of try to like cover and present this nice face to everybody. So I myself, like about um, I'd say about 10 years ago, I was just like, I had this persistent feeling that I was a bad Christian. And I put that kind of in air quotes because what does that even mean? But at the time I just felt that label so seriously. And I, I had been carrying that label around without ever really being honest about it. And when I was finally honest about it with God, just a lot of openness and healing opened up for me. And I realized like, Oh, that thing that I kept avoiding, that was exactly the place I needed to go. That room that I kept locked, that was the place where healing lived. And I've really found, you know, that was true in my faith. It's been true in pretty much all parts of my life. (laughs) So now I just really love talking about awkwardness and pointing out the blessings that, you know, are hiding in the middle of it. I love everything you just said. And specifically, uh, the term awkward Christian and which is the name of your, your website, your blog. And, and then the relation to like being a bad Christian, because a few weeks ago I was talking to Andrea of uh, the host of her story speaks podcast. She's Mm -hmm. a really close friend and sister. And I said to her, I said, Andrea, I'm a bad Christian. I was like, and she said, we should get shirts made that say bad Christian. And, and, and I resonate so deeply with what you said, because before in my past previous history as a Christian and churchgoer, I did feel like I was never enough. Like, like I had to pray harder and pray more and pray more serious and get into the spirit even more and, and read scripture even more and, and, and do deep dives even more. And I had to serve even more. And there was just all of this pressure. Yes. Because I, I just wasn't in my, in my understanding, I wasn't doing it right. And I went to church and I left church often feeling not good enough. Yes. Yes. Which is the opposite of how I believe personally, we're supposed to um, have that experience of, of yeah. going to church and Yeah. Well, and I think it's ironic because Jesus said, there is no one good. Like, why do we keep striving to be good, to be quote unquote good when Jesus said, well, we're all, you know, you're all in the same boat. All of you are struggling. All of you are broken. You are cracked vessels. 
on purpose. Like, I mean, not that I think God wills our brokenness, but like God knows and is completely acquainted with the fact that we're human made us that way. So why, why are we striving for this? Yeah. That not enoughness. It's like this drumbeat inside of my head most of the time. And, and, you know, even after a long healing journey, it's really hard to live that, to feel it, to know it as I'm falling asleep at night. Like what I did today is good enough. It is enough. And I am beloved even if I'm not reading my Bible every day, even if, you know, and like, if that's the worst thing that we're failing at, <laughs> like, oh my Lord, like if we're, if we're treating our children kindly or, you know, being a good friend and we also didn't read our Bible that day, I say, praise Jesus. <laughs> yeah. 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 E to everything that you just said, I'm like, amen. Mm -hmm. um, it feels and, and I'd love to know your take on this, but deconstructing my own faith. At first it was scary, but now all I feel is freedom. How about, what is that like for you? I think, and that's why, that's where I think the awkwardness is. I think we avoid the fear. Yeah. We are so afraid of everything collapsing around us that we can't even take a step forward. But I would say like we, if we are, if we are Christ followers and I don't assume that everyone listening to this mm -hmm. is, um, but you know, if we are thinking that, that we're Christ followers, like Jesus died, there was a death there. <laughs> like, I keep saying to people, like, if there, there can't be a resurrection unless something has died. And I think, I, you know, I think there's this sense in the church of like, you know, you have to take up your cross, you have to lay down your life. And it's sort of like, well, you've got to be willing to go be a missionary in Af Africa or do stuff that you hate if God calls you to, because you're supposed to be good. And I think it's actually like, you have to lay down your life as you think it's supposed to be, whatever that is, and actually accept and actually step into something new. Like you have to be willing to let that old thing die, whatever that is, whether it is, you know, a marriage that is choking you, whether it is a friendship that just isn't working, whether it is a church community that makes you feel completely small. If you never, if you never step away from that thing, if you never take, if you never approach it from a new angle and let the thing die, as you understand it, you can never, ever get out from underneath it. And I think so many of us stay stuck and afraid because we think the fear is all there is. And I think Jesus is saying, don't be afraid because there is actually something better if we allow ourselves to move through the fear, but there is no way to get through it except to go through it, you know? So, so literally I'm sitting here. I don't even know how I'm still sitting in this seat. <laughs> because you're looking you, very calm. <laughs> I said, oh shit, she just gutted me. But literally, <laughs> when you said there can't be a resurrection until something has died. I felt that at such a visceral level, like, like everything you just said, the relationship, the addiction, the old ways of thinking, whatever your thing is, there has to be a, <laughs> there has to be a death before you can rise, before you can be alive again, before you can grow and move into the direction of your purpose, whatever that is. Right. Something has to die. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm just thinking of um, the writer Mary Carr uh, wrote about addiction in her book. Oh, I'm forgetting what book it is. But she said she was very hostile to the idea of faith. She grew up as an atheist. And when she was in recovery from alcoholism, she she had a terrible night where she was, you know, retching into the toilet all night because she was just drunk and, you know, her body was was in terrible shape. And the next day, and people in AA had been telling her, you need, you need to talk to yourself about this higher power. And she kept being like, I'm not into the higher power thing, you know, and that's a pretty open-ended thing in AA. Right. And she had this moment where she's like, I was literally like, if a toilet, they call it the porcelain throne. I was literally worshiping at a porcelain throne last night, 
all night because she was puking into the toilet. And she's like, and I'm not willing to entertain the idea of God. Like she had to even put to death her idea of like, I am a person that does not believe in a higher power in order to step into something new. And I don't think that that's going to look the same way for everybody, but just our insistence that we know exactly who we are and how we should think and what we do, that has to die and we have to be willing to explore something new. And for maybe someone who was raised in the church, you might have to, you know, put on the altar your conception of what God is and what church should look like, you know, kind of the opposite of Mary Carr. But if you're never willing to put that on the altar and let it die, you will never experience any kind of healing from it. All of that, even as you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, as you said, you know, Christians being being willing to, to put some things to the side, being willing to let some things die. I just had this image and just thinking that that in church, at least in my experience, there was, we talked a lot about fear being a sin, but there is also a lot of fear. There was fear that was preached in the pulpit every day. And in Sunday school class and in vacation Bible school and in Bible study, lots of fear that kept us kind of all thinking the same way, believing the same way. And there was a lot of fear and questioning. Yeah. What if there's more to this or what if that isn't exactly true? Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I think, I think moving, I was just having a conversation with my friend yesterday about just moving away from that fear and shame based thinking. And, you know, quite honestly, and this is something I struggle with sometimes, like if you read the Bible, it's in there. That kind of fear-based thinking is a major theme of the of the Bible. I told my friend, I think part of the Bible is just a sustained argument <laughs> over what vision of God is going to win out because we have Jesus saying, do not fear. And then we've got, you know, <laughs> we've got the God of the old Testament saying, be very, very afraid. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, it's not all one note. And I think, I think I think there's good news in the Bible, but it's not always obvious. And so we have to be really discerning and really open-minded and kind of read it sideways, you know, like, like Emily Dickinson says, because it's, it's kind of understandable why there's so much fear in churches. It's, it's tough. It is. It is. So, you know, in thinking about this topic of healthy love and, and healthy relationships, and reviewing some of the stuff that you've written and, and some of your videos and, and, and your course that we're going to talk about. One of the things that I loved, I'm, I'm in this season of my life, and I think this will be a forever season, where I, I am only able to entertain or have people in my life and talk to people who are truth tellers. Mm. And what immediately just grabbed me in, in looking at module one of, of, of your course, the loving dignity course is that you speak your truth. Mm. And that is so, in my opinion, my experience so rare in Christian environments. And I am a Christian, just people's ability to just be honest and tell the truth. This is my history. This is my story because of fear for you, you know, as we're kind of wanting to morph into talking about what it means to have healthy relationships and healthy love, if you'll kind of talk about that process for you of, of sharing your truth and, and then what is your truth as it relates to relationships and, and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough because, um, I was not the truth teller in my family. I was not the truth teller. I was the peacekeeper my sister was the truth teller. And, um, I grew up in a family where, where I was the golden child. I was the youngest. I was the only biological child. And I, I, you know, I, I, I don't think my parents intended this, you know, I want to, I want to give them grace, but the truth of our family was that I was treated very differently than my brother and sisters. And she made a stink. And when she was mistreated, or especially when my brother was mistreated, she would speak up and say something about it and she would get in trouble. And that was ugly for her. 
And she was alone in that truth telling for a really long time. And, you know, when I was little, that's understandable. Like you just survive as a kid, right? Like there was, it was not, it was not a safe thing for any of us to be speaking out. And I really respect her for not being able to shut up about it, but that was hard for her. And I saw (laughs) how hard it was and I learned to keep quiet. But as an adult, um, what I thought was, I'm trying to understand everyone and give everyone the benefit of the doubt. I'm trying to love everybody, which sounded so great and so Christian-y and such like the, what the good kid would do. And that was what I was, you know, that's what I learned as a, as a child. But what I realized, there was a, a moment, actually, I, I discovered about 10 years ago that there had been, my grandfather had sexually abused my brother, and, and my brother's given me permission to share that publicly. So, and at the time, that information, it turned my whole family sideways and kind of the reactions of each of my family members pointed out to me that things were not nearly healed in our family, that really all of the same patterns and stuff that I thought, well, that was in the past. That isn't happening now. Past, I realized like, oh no, everything is still functioning as it was before. It's just more subtle. Right. And I realized there was a gathering that we had at my house where my, like literally my brother and my sister went outside to hang out like away from us. And I was stuck inside with my parents, which was always the dynamic growing up. And I realized I was not able to speak truth to my parents about what I really felt about how they were reacting and how we were all coped with my brother's abuse. And I thought, I am actually not the same person with each member of my family. I present one face to my father and a different face to my mother and a different place face to my sister and a different face to my brother. And do I even know who I am with myself? Like, not really. I did not. I had a deep sense of shame about my, I realized that I was complicit in all of those patterns. I had to be because I was part of the family system. It wasn't something I chose, but it was something. And I realized I was basically not being real with anybody. And... (laughs) I thought, should I go get therapy? And then I did what most of us do. I put it off for like four years. (laughs) But when I finally went to get therapy, my therapist said, you know, are you ready to trust people enough to tell them the truth? And it had never occurred to me that my lack of candor was actually also a lack of trust in other people that by not speaking up and not being honest, I was limiting how much people, how much I could love people and how much they could love me because there was not real vulnerability and intimacy there. And with, you know, I want to really emphasize the therapy part because I had to, I needed serious professional help to walk through those conversations. It would not have been safe for me to do it without a professional alongside me doing it. But with her help, I was able to start having those conversations. And frankly, it sucked. Like it, it, like all the shit hit the fan and it just flew all over the room. (laughs) And then I had to like go and like wipe the walls down by hand. I mean, it was just crappy. I mean, just, but I like, let's be honest. I had been carrying that shit on my back. Uh So it wasn't, it was around me all the time. It, and finally I had the chance to clean it up. It wasn't like, oh, things were good. And then the shit hit the fan. It was like, I had a load of poop sitting on my back, like 20 pounds of poop and it went everywhere. But then it, then I had the chance to clean it up and I didn't have to carry it anymore. Yeah. You know, it was so, you. it's good. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was not the truth teller. Mm-hmm. Nothing about me wanted to be the truth teller. And now I can't shut up. (laughs) It's like that, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) You're like, oh, that's what I used to do. Yeah, we're done with that. (laughs) So the therapist in me, which is hard to turn off, as you were speaking, I just wondered, I'm so familiar with that. I'm this person with this person. And then because I dealt with that, I was this person with this group of friends. And then with this family member, I'm a totally different person. Yeah. And then I have a separate group of friends that aren't like the other group. And then I'm like this with them. And so sometimes for me, that comes from uh, that 
That's kind of like a survival tactic, a fear of rejection, fear of abandonment, and then some people pleasing. Does any of that resonate with you as well? Yes. Yes and amen. I mean, we learn how to stay safe and under the radar. Like if the stakes are high, like they were in my family and I know they were in your family, like the stakes are like life and death, right? Child, you put your head down and you learn how not to like, I mean, it's like you're in a, in a battle zone and you're not putting your head up to get sniped at. Like, of course, of course we learn how to be different people with different people because that is how we blend in and stay safe. I think I was, I I keep going back to this word, the word integrity, which we think about like being like a, a person of righteousness, but it actually means wholeness. Like a whole number is an integer, right? Like a number that cannot. And if we want to have integrity that comes from wholeness inside of ourselves, and it isn't until we actually do the work of healing of becoming whole that we have any chance of being having integrity with other people it isn't like a bootstrap yourself having your word mean something and make sure you're punctual like <laughs> it's more it's a lot deeper than that and i think i always felt ashamed to just not know how to manage my family but, and to not know, to not understand, I didn't understand why it just felt so hard and fraught and jagged all the time. And I was so hard on myself, but it was really, it was about finally putting down the backpack of poop and saying, I'm just not willing to carry this for everybody anymore. And frankly, I shouldn't have been told to carry this in the first place. Sure. So when we think about our families. I am familiar with growing up in a family and also working with people who come from families uh, where there is secrets, there's denial, there's shame, there's trauma, there's silence. And, And there's this huge elephant in the room of all the issues, but no one is willing to talk about what's wrong in the family. Mm. And if you do speak out, you're, I, I, I've noticed that the people that do speak out tend to become like, like the black sheeps of the family and they're alienated. Yes. Um, What was it like for you when you started speaking out about the abuse? Yeah, I became, I mean, I was enough of the golden child that I did not have to go through the same Mm -hmm. level of Mm -hmm. rejection that my brother and sister did. Like, Uh let's just name that. Um, But yes, absolutely. The, the speaking up, it immediately resulted. I mean, like, for instance, my, both my brother and sister had been basically sent away from her house at very young ages. And after college, I first started exploring my relationship to my family, first got therapy then and, and wasn't really able to do the, all the work then, probably just because, you know, I was still pretty young and it was a lot to take on. And when I first started speaking up to my parents, I almost immediately got kicked out of the house. Like... <laughs> And my sister sister was visiting at the time. She's like, I kind of, I I like, she was literally visiting our our parents' house while I was getting kicked up and kicked, kicked out and moving out. She's like, I feel like the roles are reversed here. And there's something really weird about it. (laughs) Like I'm staying and you're going. I mean, like, it was so like, it was like a script. Like you could predict, like, Oh, if why will happen? And why would you say X when you know that Y is coming? Even if it's just visceral knowledge, it is an immediate, you know, we are not dumb as human beings. You're not, kids are not stupid. They figure out pretty quickly what the consequences for saying the wrong things are. Um, And I will also, I will say this. I think, I think part of the thing that I, I shame myself for a long time for not speaking up, but what I've realized is in my family, and I think in a lot of families, when I would say I'm struggling, I'm sad, I'm grieving, I'm depressed, there would not be an appropriate reaction back. You know, my parents, because of their own suffering, battened themselves down and could not respond. Mm-hmm. And so it, as a child, if you were feeling these big fa- feelings and no one is responding to you, you think that those feelings are not real. And so you fold them up and you put them away. Mm -hmm. And I just remember, I remember feeling like there was this one time when I was very angry and very 
depressed. And I started speaking that out loud. And my mom responded to, into such a way, it was almost like someone had vacuumed all of those feelings out or like my entire inside just went white mm -hmm. because we need each other to feel our emotions, right? Like we can't process that. You know, we're so individualistic in our culture, but we it's really all about relationship. And so how do we to do it if we don't have somebody to reflect back to us what we're saying and to help us understand what's going on in our own head. It's not something we can do on our own, which is why another reason why I think therapy is so important, because if you've never had the chance to do that in your relationships, how in the hell are you supposed to start doing it on your own? Again, everything you just said, and I wrote down, we need each other to, to feel our emotions. If you, if you don't grow up in a family in which emotions are welcome and, and expressed and communicated in healthy and boundaried ways. Yeah. Then you do kind of internalize everything, keep everything to yourself, or it comes out in other really toxic ways. Yes. So you, so having a therapist allows you to get it all out in a safe place. Yes. Cause there might be a little bit of force when it comes out, if you've saved it up for 10 years. It's like opening a champagne bottle that somebody shook. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, it, it's going to be all of that. And so uh, there's a couple of things that I wanted to ask uh, as it relates to the process of, of unlearning certain messages. And, and I mentioned before we press record that I was trying really hard to think about when it comes to relationships, when it comes to abuse, I don't recall ever hearing very much if anything spoken about or spoken against abuse, sexual, mm. physical, emotional, verbal, all forms of abuse, narcissistic yes. behavior, domestic violence, uh, childhood trauma type stuff. Uh, I, I don't recall any sermons on those topics at all. Yes. Um, I, I remember, I, I can probably quote Proverbs 31 and tell you all the books that they referenced in terms of <laughs> what it meant to be a good wife and, and, <laughs> and all of those things. And, and then we can talk about forgiveness because they talked about a lot about forgiveness. What was your process in unlearning church messages or church lessons as it relates to love and relationships? Oh gosh. Or what lessons did you learn on the topic is I guess yeah. a better question. Yeah, no. Well, I mean, the unlearning came, it came after college when I mentioned that I got kicked out. That was when I first went to therapy and my very first session on my therapist's couch, you know, to give some context, I had just graduated from college and I'd been super involved in a parachurch ministry for all four years of college that I went to school in Texas. So it was in the Bible belt. It was a very conservative chapter of that parachurch ministry. And I just went whole hog. Like I was like, leading Bible study and evangelizing people. And I went to therapy, was kind of feeling off. Like the, the, someone in the ministry had actually recommended to me that I get some therapy because, you know, they were like, you know, it seems like you're struggling with some stuff that maybe is a little bigger than you can handle. So I went, I went to therapy and the therapist who knew had counseled my ther my parents has said, you know, it sounds to me like you're depressed. And I was like, ha, I'm like the happiest person I know. What are you talking about? And she said, Heather, depression is sometimes des described as anger turned inwards. Who are you angry at? And I, it was like a curtain fell down <laughs> and there was suddenly I realized like, there was hot boiling lava inside me. Like one moment I'm like, I'm the happiest person in the world. And the next moment I'm like, oh, I'm a big ball of rage. <laughs> like, oh my Lord, like I am. And I was angry at my parents. And I, the thing that I realized in that moment, Tasha was not one of the activities that I did in those four years of college had any gave me any tools to deal with that. They were useless. And not only maybe were they useless, but they had probably, probably effing distracted me and pointed me away from that rage. Yeah. So I, 
I mean, like I basically went around for a good six months thinking like, am I even a Christian? Because if it doesn't help, what is the point? Like, what is the point of this faith? If it distracts me from the reality (laughs) of what is going on inside me and gives me absolutely no tools to help me figure out that I am royally pissed at people. I mean, like, isn't that what, I mean, those are themes that maybe Jesus mentions. It was only like, I, I would probably have lost my faith had I not really felt God come alongside me, you know, and God being sort of a voice interior to me that did not sound like the depressed voice that was usually talking to me. Um, And say, I am not going anywhere, whether you call yourself a Christian or not. If that's what you need to do, fine, great, understandable. I'm still here. You don't have to do anything you don't want to. And I don't really know why that voice came to me. But frankly, I think there were probably people who needed it equally as much as me. But I was like, you know what? On those terms, I had really found a lot of meaning and belonging in Christianity. And the words of Jesus still felt really compelling to me. So I was like, you know what? Okay, I'll stick around for a little bit and see if I see if I still feel this way in a year. And that was a huge wake up call to me. So after that, I was sort of like, if I don't have to do anything I don't want to do, I can still call myself a Christian, then everything's on the table. And that was, I mean, that again, like that was sort of a death, right? Like I left, put everything on the table. Mm -hmm. And so if, if I don't have to do what I don't want to, then if a teaching comes to me or a recommendation comes to me, And it it does not actually help me if it does not help me understand what is on inside me in a real way, that's probably not helpful. And I'm done with it. And I really find, like, I go to, I even told my pastor this, (laughs) I'm one of the elders of my church. I'm very honest, probably in an uncomfortable way. I kind of don't because very often the sermons sort of talk about like the worst problems people have are like minor financial crises and maybe someone in their family dying, or maybe they're an alcoholic. Alcoholism is kind of the one thing, the one major problem we can talk about, but yeah, sexual abuse, domestic abuse, do these things get talked about very often? No. And so if we're going to be talking in sort of a general way about wholeness, I, my brain goes, would this have helped me? I, maybe I'll just draw something in my notebook while I'm listening to the sermon. And it's not that I don't pick up good things from my pastor's sermons. I do. It's just the majority of time, it does not hit me where I really need it most. And I really get more out of worship. And so that's, or and, and about seeing the people that I'm in community with. So that's what I go to church for. And my pastor knows that. And frankly, he's fine with it. That is the most honest I've ever heard anybody talk about just the experience of being in church, going to church and not really getting fed. That, that, that was one of the things that led to my departure is, is I was going to church, but it wasn't feeding me in the way that I needed it to feed me. It's like, what am I doing? Yeah. Yeah. I enjoyed the hugs. I enjoyed the conversations. Yeah. I enjoyed the worship music, but those messages aren't hitting in the way that I need them to hit. Along those same lines in your course, one of the other things that I love is that you named the abuse. This is a course that I'm obviously going to be telling my clients about because it's important um, that they that they understand the processes of of freeing themselves and healing themselves and and just acknowledging their own truth, mm. acknowledging the toxic behaviors, but also along with that in a, in a parallel process, learning healthier behaviors. Yeah. Can you talk about the importance of naming? the thing, whatever the thing is. I mean, I think it goes along with the silence. If there are toxic patterns in our relationships, over time, we learn to keep our head down. And I mean, I love that in the Bible, God is constantly giving names to people. Naming things is important. It is a way of making them more real. I think it is a way of um, recognizing them. And I was in, I was in a car with somebody who often mistreated me and they were giving me the silent treatment. And, you know, we had a long drive. It was like a 40 minute drive (laughs) silence the entire way. And I was praying the entire time. And it's funny when someone is giving you the silent treatment, the silence is like, 
it's like an imperative. I had said, you know, I greeted them, no response. I had asked a question, no response. And after that, it's like someone puts a muzzle over your mouth. And at the end of the drive, as I pulled into the driveway, I was like, it seems like you are giving me the silent treatment. And bam, it was like a magic trick. (laughs) The spell was, I mean, it did not make it less uncomfortable, but it made it uncomfortable on my terms, right? Like I was no longer willing to just go along with it. And, you know, I kind of prayed to know what to do. And maybe in other situations, that would not be the safe thing to do. I don't know. But I was done going along and being muzzled. And the person started to respond to me almost immediately, justifying their behavior because I pointed out that they were being rude. Mm -hmm. They were being rude and they were being abusive. And they had no cover anymore. If I was not muzzled, if I was not playing the game that they were playing and allowing them to muzzle me, the the dynamics of it changed. Mm -hmm. Naming things. And it's funny because I think often when we have been mistreated, it's tempting to you get so afraid and so interior that when you do speak up, it all kind of explodes out. But I've almost found that like just calmly stating things is more disorienting to people (laughs) than getting super upset about it because they're not expecting that. They think that they are trying to put, have power over you and pointing out that they're doing something that is at best inappropriate puts the ball in their court. They have to justify themselves and you can give them space. You know, it seems like, you know, I feel like you don't want to talk about this and I'm really interested in resolving this with you. When when might we be able to talk about it? It's like, then the ball is there in in their court and you haven't given them any way, any footholds to accuse you of anything. I mean, a really unhealthy person will accuse you anyway, but there's something about naming that is so powerful and it is hard to learn, but it is very disarming. And I think it, um, I think it's kind of, I, I put, said this in the course, there are certain things you can do that are kind of like ninja moves because they put the other person off balance. And I think it's very much, if we are in our own dignity and are saying, are reminding ourselves that we have no reason to feel ashamed for someone else doing something wrong to us. If we name that to them, they realize that they don't have the control over us that, that they thought that they would have. So, you know, the cover is blown. It's, it's out there. Now it's on that person to kind of handle things. And and as I listen to you, it's like, it's always our hope to try to figure it, to work out things. Right. But also when you name the abuse, for instance, whatever the toxicity is, whatever the issue is, when you name it, that's also step one of, Hey, let's resolve this. Let's, let's try to figure this out. Yeah. So it's important to acknowledge it. The Loving Dignity course. And I'm ready to talk about it because I love it. So. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Please talk about it. Yeah. So if you're interested in finding out more about it, I'll just say that. So I don't forget it's uh, you can go to my website. It's heathercaleri.com slash dignity. Um, basically it's, it's called 30 days to loving dignity. It's a self-paced course each weekday. You do a short 15, 10 to 15 minute video and you know take notes there's a workbook that goes along with it so that kind of journal and work your way through each session and kind of remember what's going on um and then there's also if you sign up before june 1st or by june 1st i should say you can get free access to a facebook group to discuss questions in the work workbook with other participants you'll have live q a's with me about you can submit questions to get some, you know, I love playing advice columnist basically mm-hmm. um, to get some advice about, you know, I'm not a therapist, but just these are patterns, right? These are patterns that repeat themselves. Um, and then also I have amazing expert interviews that I'm doing with, uh, Tasha is one of them. So yep. <laughs> there are four people that I'm interviewing, uh, Melanie Dale about parenting, Bronwyn Lee about, um, you know, church relationships, uh, Carol Howard Merritt about recovering from spiritual abuse. And then you like, how do we have boundaries after trauma and um, so just to get some, some bigger picture ideas from people who really have training in these, um, in these topics or who have lived through different life experiences. So I think it's going to be really rich. 
the thing that I, that the reason I call it the loving dignity is because too often in the church, we talk about love as if it's presenting yourself to people as a being a doormat. And I do not think that that was Jesus's intention. Like if you look at the Jesus of the Bible, not a doormat, the dude was like flipping over tables, telling off the religious authorities, coming alongside people that were socially unacceptable. He was anything but a shrinking violet. So how we got the idea <laughs> that we're supposed to let people walk all over ourselves, all over us, it's really like it's a cultural problem in Christianity. I do not think that it's biblical or what God intends. And I I, I really am trying to get at the root theology that helps us know that God's vision for us have integrity and wholeness and dignity in all of our relationships. And that if we learn how to treat, if we actually love people well, they should be flourishing, but we should be flourishing too. It's not at the expense of us that people well, it should allow both people to floor. I think God's vision for us and our relationships is for wholeness and not just wholeness for other people, but wholeness for us as well. So if we are loving people well, then we should not be allowing them to abuse us, period, end of sentence. And if we're allowing us- Can you please say that again? If we're loving people well, <laughs> that was so good. Yeah. If we are loving people well, we should not be allowing them to abuse us. It is not good for them to be in a pattern of abuse. Like how would that be helping them flourish to be trampling over other people? That is not goodness for them. So part of loving well is saying no to abusiveness and setting firm boundaries so that people are not, we're not encouraging people to sin against us. I mean, like, yes, <laughs> there's no, there's no point in the Bible where it's like, Hey, it's really good for people to continue on in super unhealthy behaviors. Like, no, and it's not that it's our responsibility to change them or something, but we can at least say, no, that nonsense stops at my door. Right. Mm -hmm. So I really think that culturally in the church, you were talking about the word forgive. I've heard other people, especially people who people of color, people who've been abused say forgiveness has been weaponized against us. And there's, I think we need to point out the difference between forgiving people and having a, you know, hoping that God will, you know, heal them and work, work to heal them, right? Mm -hmm. Versus being their best friends. <laughs> Those are two different things. Are, you know, having a ha attitude that maybe it's God is calling us to not actively hate them versus inviting them over for dinner. Those not necessarily tied. We can decide that we are trying not to hate somebody and also say, you know, they are not safe enough to ever let in my house again. Powerful. There, there are steps. I do believe that, that forgiveness is important in certain ways. I always tell my clients, so that's not the first step and it's not mandatory. <laughs> it's a, it's a process. Yes. Uh, and I think we each need to come to our own understanding of it. Like taking this given, yes. no. Yeah. In my experience as a survivor of trauma and as a therapist, I've often kind of noticed, and I don't know that I've ever spoken about this, but because the message is so heavy on forgiveness in church spaces, I've noticed that abusers take the standpoint of, yeah, I've done these things wrong or yeah, I'm doing these things to this other person, but I'm going to be forgiven because abusers also exist inside church walls. Often, I mean, like for instance, there is a, I think several hundred percentage higher preponderance of narcissist pastors than there are in the general population. And there, there are people, researchers who have said that for example, sexual predators know that church spaces are good spaces to go because there's sort of this idea that we accept every, not that we welcome everyone and everyone is safe and we all need to be, you know, friendly with each other and we all need to hug each other and in the in the coffee hour. They know that those are places where there's sort of this faux intimacy that's not grounded in real safety with one another. And so they know that that's a good place to go to, to look for vulnerable people. And we need to be really honest about whether our church cultures are promoting real healthy boundaries and not just you know, quote unquote fellowship. Powerful. Are, are you, a, do you, do you teach? I would, I would, I would go to your church. Are you, 
Can you please become a pastor? I'd be a terrible pastor. I don't like people that much. <laughs> I mean, everything you're saying is so good. You, Tasha, that's really kind to hear. <laughs> Listen, I, I am a bad Christian. I'm going to get a shirt made with that on it. It's and and we need as part of we need more people willing to just state here are the facts. Here's the truth of it. And and we've not done a good job as Christians in terms of calling out and naming abuse. Yes. And helping people to identify systems of oppression and abuse yes that even reside in the good old boys club and church walls <laughs> the sister circles and all of it yeah it's you know we got to be a lot i think it's like there's this idea of a hopeful and earnest idea of like well jesus changes everything and so therefore if we put if we saw christian on it it'll be safe and wonderful and it's like I get the wishful, I get why people have that wishful thinking, but Jesus, that Jesus didn't say, if you slap the Christian label on something, you magically make it better. It's like, no, there's a hard, there is a cost. You have to take up your cross in order to heal, heal things. It is not just a once and done kind of process. So I think we've got to get a lot more honest about it in the church. This course, even though we're talking a lot about God and a lot about Jesus and and coming into the awareness of our own truth as it relates to being able to have healthy relationships and, and all of that, that this is a course, and please hear me listeners, this is a course, even if you're like, well, I don't believe, or my faith is shaky, or I don't know, or I had a bad church experience, I'm telling you, what you do is you get the course, you take the meat, you throw the bones. If 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 any mention of God is offensive, take the meat, throw the bones out because the material is for all people. I'm saying that as a, as a survivor, as a woman, as a therapist, as a bad Christian, this course is great for all people. Thank when, you. When, yeah, because when I hear you talk about loving people well, loving ourselves well, that's a message for all. Yes. Yes. Um, when, when you're talking about having boundaries, um, taking action, you know, in the healing process and all of these things, that's a message for all. So if you're listening, you take the meat because Heather, um, she knows what she's talking about. Thank you. That's all I'm saying. The therapist told me I know what I'm talking about. Like, yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, you you do. So um, we're at the end of our interview, and I just have three three questions. Um, if you're listening to music and you want to dance, you want to move your body, even if if you even dance or, or do anything like that, but but you just want to listen to something upbeat. What kind of music are you listening to? Oh gosh. I will be honest, I'm not much of a music listener, but I really love, I actually am a dancer. Mm -hmm. um, so I love swing music. Nice. I, I did Lindy Hop for a really long time. So there's something about like that. That's a workout. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who makes you laugh? Who or what makes you laugh? My husband makes me laugh. He's got yeah. a great sense of humor. Very dry. I mean, you got to love the dry, smart humor, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> yes. yes. And who or what inspires you? You know, I was just thinking about this the other day. I had, I've, I found out this week that uh, two people I know who have already been through a lot. I was thinking of, I, I'm thinking about being able to talk to them and walk through what they're experiencing. And the book that came to mind was Howard Thurman's um, Jesus and God of the Oppressed, or is it Jesus and the Oppressed? One of those two. And he says, what does God, what does Jesus have to say to the people with their backs against the wall? And that was a, that was a book used by civil rights leaders to motivate them towards, you know, nonviolent resistance to the Jim Crow laws. And I'm just thinking, I'm thinking about those leaders, you know, especially African-Americans after hundreds of years of oppression, those leaders that said, we are not going to give into hatred, not going to give into despair. We are going today to make songs, to write books, to, to love each other. Like that inspires me. Before we go, I just want to share with listeners a story I told you about how I even got acquainted with you. Uh, on Facebook, somehow I ended up in some groups and following some pages where there were women writers. 
you were one of them. And so I would follow you. I'd get your blog post via email and I'd read The Mudroom. If anybody wants to see any of, of Heather's writing, go to her website. I'll also go to The Mudroom and, and Heather, please share any other websites where, where you're on, where people can follow your writing. And I, and I wanted to become a writer, but I didn't yet believe in myself. Mm. And so I would just read all of these women's, all of their writing. And I thought I could never be as good as them. And I would see a few posts every now and then for submissions or something. And, and I just, I wanted to so badly. And I just thought I'm not good enough. Mm. And then some kind of way, my whole Facebook changed. And so I'm no, no longer following any of the stuff that I used to follow and I don't even know. But then years later, you find me on social media or something. I don't know. And this is divine providence. This is, I mean, completely. It's like I hear God whispering, you're good enough. Mm. And you're a, you're a whole ass author now. You're good enough. <laughs> I'm just going to bless you with a whole ass author title. <laughs> That's what God said to me. Okay. <laughs> You're a whole ass author now. Yes. And you're good enough. And yes. so, I don't know, I feel totally honored that I get to have you on my podcast and that you reached out to me and that it's just, this is just a divine connection. I just believe it. No, I mean, I heard, I heard your, a bit of your story on Andrea's podcast, actually, the Her Story Speaks yeah. podcast. And I just felt so much resonance there because there are definitely parts of my family story that really resonated with yours. And I mean, it's so funny that comparison voice of like, oh, well, those people know what they're doing, but I don't. And so therefore I can't be part of that. Like, let's be honest. I feel that all the time myself, right? Like yeah. it's gotten easier with years of writing, but that, that comparison voice in our faith, that comparison voice in our creative life or our careers or in parenting or in marriage or whatever part we're in, it's just a lying voice because we're all kind of bewildered and just <laughs> making things up usually. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, thank you so much. Can you tell listeners again where they can find you on social and your website? Yes. So my website is Heather Kaliri, C-A-L-I-R-I. Com. You can get information about the 30 Days to Loving Dignity course at heathercaleri.com slash dignity. And I'm usually over on Instagram. That's where I most often post. So you can find those posts at, at Heather Kaleri. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining me this week on When We Speak please make sure you visit the website at TashaHunterAuthor.com. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, I would appreciate leaving a rating. It will help others find the show more easily and hopefully be a benefit to them as well.